This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. We may not agree on whether or not we should mock vegans, but Farhad Manju and I do agree that the world would be a lot better with a little more empathy in it, which I guess probably means I actually do agree with him that we should not mock the vegans after all. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin, and sometimes just whatever else I want it to be about, which is the case this week. Farhad Manju is a New York Times opinion columnist. They've previously written for the Wall Street Journal, for Slate, for Salon, for Wired, uh, for many years about tech, but now about all kinds of other things. And I do recommend reading their work if you don't already. Um, I've been reading them for quite a long time, and I was really excited that they agreed to come to the Cap Times Idea Fest and speak on a panel about media credibility. And I was even more excited that they agreed to sit down and chat with me for a little bit about vegans, Twitter, pronouns, opinion writing, and generally fostering better conversations as people and as journalists. Stay tuned in just a minute. We'll be right back with that conversation. Thank you, Farhad, for, for being here um, in the UW-Madison Memorial Union. It's a beautiful day here in Madison. This is your second time yes, here in the city? Yes, it's fun to be here. Um, you just got done with a panel talking uh, about media credibility. What, did, what were your takeaways from, from that? What do you think the, the big themes were? Yeah, it was um, actually more pessimistic than I thought it would be, mostly because of me. I was saying that <laughs> I, have, um, I have sort of diminishing faith that... We, as a kind of a culture, um, will be kind of more informed over time. Like, I think that there's, you know, lots of business problems in the news media. There's also this kind of war between politicians and news, uh, Donald Trump being kind of the exhibit A. But, um, you know, in general, there's a more and more antagonistic relationship between uh, politicians and news. And then we have this... um, you know, we have these kind of social and um, kind of psychological problems with news where, you know, a lot of people get their news um, on social media or digitally in general. And we have these tendencies that it's hard to overcome where we kind of lock ourselves up into echo chambers and can't. Um, and it's difficult for us to kind of be okay, be comfortable with news that confronts our, um, you know, deeply held beliefs. And so I feel like all of these things together lead us to kind of a bad place. And, um, you know, I think there's some experiments and um, people working on some ideas for, um, you know, restoring credibility in news and fixing um, kind of the business of news. But more and more, I'm less uh, optimistic about kind of how we solve some of these problems. Yeah, it's kind of a huge bummer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, did you always plan to go into journalism? Is this like your life's calling? Yes, uh, pretty much. I don't think I know how to do anything else and so I mean I um as like a kid and a teenager I just spent a lot of time reading the news reading newspapers um I grew up in 
the 90s and like in 1995 the new york times started uh, a website and i like got the internet early and was like reading the news on i was i grew up in california and i was reading like the new york times from california i just sort of like knew instinctively that that's what i wanted to do so then when i went to college i joined the college newspaper and um just kind of like my career has been defined (laughs) ever since (laughs) by that like um you know i really um like the news i'm still like i have this kind of addictive relationship to the news where i can't stop reading the news even like on vacation like i just sort of need to know what's going on in the world and i have a lot of kind of like intellectual uh fun like imagining what's going to happen with the news playing out storylines and so you know it's i'm in the fortunate position where that is also my job is like reading the news and kind of talking about the news and so it's worked out in that way yeah um yeah you're stuck in this thing that's just like on a downward spiral but we're all gonna go down together yes (laughs) right (laughs) yeah you said on the panel which is like very clearly true as i was on twitter when you said it that journalists are addicted to twitter and also like this is this weird echo chamber that exists for journalists and politicians and people whose job it is to influence journalists and politicians Mm -hmm. and like not a lot of normal people and you've tried to take breaks from Twitter, and it's been hard even for you to do that, like somewhat famously when you wrote a column about getting your news away from Twitter, mm-hmm. and like still you kept coming back to Twitter. Yeah. Um, what is what? Sh- what do you think like the right relationship is with with Twitter for journalists now? The way that I do it right now is I um, I try to I look at Twitter kind of in the morning um, for. Uh, you know, several minutes, maybe an hour or so. Then I have this app on my phone called Freedom, which kind of locks me out of Twitter. Um, and so I am currently locked out of Twitter. <laughs> uh, and I try to I prevent myself from reading Twitter for the next, uh, you know, several hours. And I check it in the afternoon and maybe check it at night. Um, the reason I do that is because, so my job, I'm an opinion columnist at the Times. My job is to write columns that, hopefully give people something new to think about new to talk about and i'm very worried like as a kind of a professional uh, a professional anxiety i have is that i'm going to fall into like groupthink like i don't want to write and say the things that people are already saying or have said on twitter i want to have like kind of original thoughts or thoughts that depart from what people are saying on twitter or that um you know are just in some way different or uh, um a, you know not from that echo chamber um and so for me it's like important that i kind of get news and talk to people and kind of get a view of the world that is not, um, you know, predominantly shaped by Twitter. And so that's, that's why I try to stay away. But it's difficult because a lot of things, you know, are happening on Twitter, like, uh, you know, Trump is uses Twitter as a way to um, both kind of break news, tell you what, what's happening in his administration, as well as kind of affect how people think about the news and everyone reacts to Trump. And then, you know, not just Trump, kind of all um, politicians now kind of, you know, communicate to the media through Twitter and meet, the media communicates with itself through Twitter. So it's become, you know, a very important part of news um, and the news business. Um, but it also has these real dangers that I think we, um, as reporters and columnists, um, you know, need to try to break out of. I always feel like, especially this, I felt this when I was reporting on politics um, and, and like digesting the fire hose of, of stuff as opposed to editorializing on it. Like if I stayed away from Twitter for a few hours, 
it was either the best decision that I made because I like went and found other things or it was the worst decision I made because I missed three hours of crazy things that happen. And it's just like this weird yeah. balance. I mean, I often find when I go back to Twitter, when I lock myself out of it and then I go back, I, I am in this place where like I'm a little bit um, disorder. Like I don't really know what's happened and I have to spend a little time figuring out like what kind of memes or words that people are talking about. <laughs> but it's never like a big thing. Like right. it's rare that I've missed something. Like maybe some breaking news happened, but usually if breaking yeah. news happens, you you hear it elsewhere. Um, and what I what the things that I miss are just like the frames of the news. Like people have already come to an opinion about a thing that happened. And often I feel like I um, can come to a better opinion or like some <laughs> some um, different uh, point of view because I've missed that frame on it, Twitter. It becomes really, really self-referential really quickly. Like you'll miss, you, you don't miss the news about like gun regulations, but you miss like the 30 to 50 feral hogs meme. And yeah, then you come back that, and you're that's like, a why example. is everyone talking about this? Why, why were people talking about feral hogs? Um, was a question I had a little while ago because I was off Twitter for a couple days and um, this guy posted this thing about feral hogs in response to about his difficulty fighting feral hogs in response to like um, talks about gun legislation and um, the whole storyline was totally unimportant like it didn't matter right um, but it was just a lot a thing people were talking about on Twitter and it's an example of like um, you know people get kind of sidetracked into unimportant things um, just because like of People are talking about it on Twitter. Yeah. So um, you're, you're here uh, in part because you know one of my colleagues, Katie Dean, uh, our, our newly promoted executive editor, former city editor, and you two started off together. Uh, you met each other at Wired back in the, the like tech boom heyday mm-hmm. um, in San Francisco. And tech was your wheelhouse for a really long time. You were at Salon, then Slate, then Wall Street Journal, then That's New York right. Times. Yep. Um, good, I got it. <laughs> um, and and I, I think I read you in every single one of those places, Thank except you. for Wired. That was a little before yeah. my, <laughs> my reading time. But um, what has it been like kind of shifting away from tech as your, your area of focus and becoming more of a, a broad-based opinion columnist? And, and how much does tech still sort of influence uh, the, the way that you're viewing the world? Um, yeah, I mean, all my life I've been interested in technology and, you know, sort of for my professional life have been writing, covering technology pretty much the last 20 years. Um, but I've tried to cover it through like a larger lens the whole time. Um, I wrote a book in the 2000s about kind of how technology affects how we think about truth and facts and conspiracy theories online um, and, you know, sort of a, a, a way to look at what we now call, you know, the alternative facts world. Um, um, and so really I've thought, tried to think about technology as kind of this um, force in the world that changes a lot of things. One of them is kind of how we regard information and think about information. Um, And so the whole time I've been writing about technology with this larger lens, and I wanted to write about the world uh, more broadly. So yeah, so the reason I wanted to be an opinion columnist is to, I, I think technology is now at the center of just about every news story in the world. I mean, it's at the center of politics. It's at the center of kind of business. Um, it's at the center of how, uh, you know, we talk to each other. Um, it's changing kind of our, in some ways, like our perception of the world, like how we understand what's happening in the world um, is really shaped by, you know, pictures people take on smartphones or how people are talking on smartphones. It's changing our language. Um, and so I wanted to write about these, the ways that technology is changing these um 
changing the world in like a, a really fundamental way. And um, so now I'm doing that in the opinion section of the Times. <laughs> That's a pretty good place to be doing that. Yeah. So I, I kind of hate when people ask me this question, um, the, the how do you come up with what to write about question, but you do write about a huge variety of, of things. So how do you decide what you're going to write about any given week? Yeah, um, it, it's a combination of kind of what's newsy that week. And I, I so I spend almost all of my time reading the news. Um, and that is like the main part of my job. And when I read the news, I have a very specific way of doing it, which is like I try to think about column ideas while I'm reading the news. It's like <laughs> become a very automatic thing. Um, I, I say reading the news, but in fact, I get like a lot of my news now from podcasts and like the way that I think about the world. So it's not just reading, but it's kind of like uh, consuming the news in mm-hmm. like all media. Um Except for cable news. Yes, except for cable. <laughs> I try to avoid cable news. Um, because actually, I find cable news to just be a reflection of what's happening on Twitter. So, like, yeah. uh, I look at Twitter as a proxy for cable. <laughs> um, so, um, often while I'm consuming the news, I try to think of column ideas. And my my pitch to the New York Times in becoming a columnist was that I wanted to write about things that people uh, weren't writing about. A really weird thing has happened in media where um, we have a whole bunch of sources and we have a whole bunch of like outlets, but I fit, but at the same time, because of um, because of like the digital advertising model, because of like social media, a lot of people are writing about the same thing. So like you know, if a story goes viral, like uh, every news source in the world is going to write about it, and um, it's become. I think there's like a lot of kind of holes in how we think about the media, um, in how we think about the world in the media. Um, and so I was trying to kind of fill in those holes. Um, I generally like to write about things people, so so basically my philosophy is I want to write about things people aren't generally talking about or where I think that it's so obvious that like we're all glaringly wrong about it and that <laughs> I feel like there's an easy, there's like a opportunity to say something, you know, to tell people where they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So one of your recent columns, uh, I jokingly sent it to Katie and was like, I'm going to fight Farhan on this because I love mocking vegans. And you just wrote about how we need to stop doing that. So why am I wrong to mock vegans? I mean, everybody loves mocking vegans, and um, I get it. Like, they're, um, they seem to be, I think there's there's a couple things about vegans. So one, there's this idea that vegans are kind of, like, preachy in their veganism. They're, uh, there's a joke, uh, how do you know you're talking to a vegan? Uh, don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, and um, the funny thing to me is, like, if you just sort of, just the most cursory look at, at like what vegans believe um, and the world they're trying to build. It's very hard to argue with them. Like it's not. It's hard to argue with the fact that like animals are treated very badly in the world. Um, uh, most of the food animals that we eat are you know from factory farming operations. And now I sound like a vegan. I'm not a vegan, <laughs> but like uh, it, it, I think they have the facts on their side on like. Uh, how we treat animals in the world. Um, and over the last, you know, um, 
as we become more concerned and as the science about uh, global warming has become more and more irrefutable, um, it's become clear that the vegans are right on that too. Like the reason that we, um, one of the major uh, sources of like of carbon and um, just kind of environmental destruction generally is all of the um, land and energy and uh, resources we put to uh growing um, meat uh, in all forms. Um, and, you know, we don't usually tend to connect the, like, we have stories about, you know, the Amazon rainforest burning, but we don't connect that to, like, the reason that's happening is because of beef production um, or soy that's used for beef production or um, chicken production. So, like, I feel like the vegans really need to be more preachy. Like, <laughs> like the the... They, I don't, it's, I don't think we all have to become vegans, but we all have to be a little bit more vegan. Like, um, the reason, and the reason we have things like more and more plant-based meats at, you know, fast food restaurants is because of vegans. Like the reason we have, um, like oat milk, uh, now sold at, you know, major supermarkets is because like there's, uh, a market for, uh, there was an early market for those kinds of things, and those that market was vegans. Um, and so, you know, I think they're trying to build a better world, and it's hard to argue with them. And like, it's I don't know. It feels it feels wrong to me when you see someone trying to do the right thing and like really sacrificing to kind of make fun of them for it. And the reason I think we make fun of them for it is because like deep down we know they're right, and like we feel a little bit guilty about it. I think you're probably right about that. And I, and I actually, I, I liked that column a lot because I felt like the bigger message is one that we could probably take to a lot of different parts of our lives, like especially politics, which is where my head is a lot of the time. And that's, we're not asking you to necessarily like change your point of view, although maybe you should, but like just give the other person a chance and, and hear them out. And I think that that is important and we don't kind of do enough of that. Yeah, um, I think that's true. I think in, in, in general, in our culture, we're missing a lot of like empathy um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and like just there an easy way to do it would be to just stop mocking vegans like to have some more <laughs> empathy like in the world point. yeah yeah um so i also came across uh I, I hadn't caught it when you published the column a couple months ago but when i was reading your bio um you prefer the pronoun they and you think we should all switch to the pronoun they um whether you know regardless of gender identity or, or sexual orientation or anything and i noticed since i read that in fact even Sam Smith, the singer, uh, just said uh, that, that they would prefer to be called they. they. Mm -hmm. um, and the AP reported this and said he would prefer to be called they. I thought, okay, this is really interesting that the AP is reporting on Sam Smith's preferred pronoun mm -hmm. and not using Sam Smith's preferred pronoun to report it. Um, this is clearly a weird like tipping point in news because we're told all of our lives as journalists, you know, this is the proper grammar and they is not the proper grammar. Um, but we're also at this point where, like, this is a real issue for people who have that preferred pronoun. So what's the case for just all of us going today? Um, yeah, so I, I don't think everyone, uh, I don't think everyone has to identify as they. Um, but I think that they should be an option for uh, everyone, especially people you don't know. So it turns, you know, in regular speech, we use um, they and them all the time. You know, you can say like, uh, um, 
like if you don't know who you're referring to, like who left their who left their bag over here is a thing you would say. Uh, like right. who's uh, you you refer to someone with the they pronoun um, kind of automatically in speech, and everyone does it. Um, the confusion comes when you're uh, or the kind of hiccup comes when you're referring to a specific person that you have. Um, through, you know, what they're wearing or how they speak or some other way have determined that they are a certain gender um, and should be referred to as either he or she. But, you know, in as we get more aware of people's, uh, you know, either dysphoria or just decision that they are not best represented by he or she, um, the very idea of he or she and that being like the only way to refer to someone becomes more and more outdated. Like there are people in this world who are not, who don't feel like they are either he or she. And so in the news media, we, um, you know, the automatic way to refer to people that we don't know is he or she. Like it's ungrammatical, uh, people say, to call someone they. Um, And so just my frustration came out of like that, like I have to write phrases all the phrase he or she all the time because copy editors at the times makes me make me. And so, you know, I wanted to write a column saying like copy editors, editors don't make me write this he or she and and we don't anymore. Like I have since that column been able to use the singular they often. Um, the other, But the other point is like, I feel like we should not automatically assume people's gender. Like I think that whatever you feel about, um, about uh, the idea of gender it is just like the as we were talking about before it's just like basic human decency and empathy to refer to people how they want to be referred to like you wouldn't call people someone the wrong name you wouldn't uh you you generally like refer to people in a way that they think that they should be referred to and that should also include gender now the problem comes like what if you don't know like should you assume in general it's like not um uh you know a dangerous thing to assume someone's gender but like, I think there are people who, um, you know, people, it's uncomfortable, especially if you're in a minority, uh, to get people to recognize that your gender may not be, you know, what they assume. And so I feel like as a, a cisgender person, as a person who is, you know, identifies as a man, I can in some way, like, get people to think about that conversation by just saying, also, you know, call me they. Um, and so we change it in my New York Times bio, in in the way people refer to me in things like podcasts or otherwise, like in media, uh, people have been starting to refer to me as they and them, and I like it um, just because it gets people to talk about that. It's like an awareness thing. Yeah, that's cool. So my last question for you is, um, as I've transitioned to the opinion side of things and, and writing columns instead of news, I have been subjected to, I would say, a, a new kind of hate mail. The hate mail is always there, but it's different now. I think people are more likely when they're engaging with someone who shares their opinions to jump to snark or anger um, and not necessarily start in a place of understanding. You have invited readers to sign up for phone calls mm-hmm. with you, um, and you've you've been doing this for a little while now, and I know you've written about it. What have you learned from your conversations with readers and, and just what happens when you ha- connect with these random readers uh, on the phone? Yeah, um, so the first thing is it's been way less confrontational than I thought it would be. I mean, maybe that's not a surprise. So the way that I do it is at the end of every column, there's a little form on my on the column page where people can write in their name and uh, phone number and say what they want to talk about. I'm available to talk about everything except for like if you want to criticize the times, like I don't, 
I represent the Times. I'm not like, uh, I don't have any power to change what the Times does. So like, but other than that, if you want to, you know, say, you know, talk about um, like national politics or the environment or just like any subject you can think of. Um, so, you know, thousands and thousands of people have filled out this form. And the way that it works is like, I look at what they uh, want to talk, what they want to talk about on this form. And if they sound interesting, um, I send them an email and they fill out this little scheduling form and they like select a time block on my calendar and then I call them. Um, and then we talk for like 10 to 15 minutes. And mostly it's them talking to me. Like I'm mostly listening. Um, but it's totally, totally interesting. It's interesting for several reasons. One is like you can have a much deeper like conversation than you can on social media. Like the way that newsrooms have kind of changed their um, operations in the last, you know, in the digital age is like we're very accessible to people from Twitter or email or whatever else talking to us but those conversations are high volume but like low quality like um you know a lot of people there's a, there's a lot of scale but there's like not a lot of like depth to the conversation and so this allows me to like have a real conversation with someone i can ask them follow-up questions i can like pose why they think a certain way um they're not at all they're they're usually not combative like i don't fight with people um they can be somewhat argumentative but like in a friendly way so, so, but the other thing is like, it's led me to just lots of interesting stories and just um, ideas about the world and how people think. Like my job is to like, as I said, like write about things people aren't talking about. And so one way to do that is just like talk to people in the world. Um, it's been great. It's very time consuming. Like I've set aside several hours a week to do this. Um, but it's, I can, the other thing about it, the other thing is like, no one talks on the phone anymore. <laughs> That's like, true. Phone yeah. calls are kind of an outdated thing. And um it's something you can do while you're doing something else. So like I do it while I'm on walks or like emptying the dishwasher or doing other things in the house and talking to people on the phone about interesting things is like totally fun. Yeah. So more conversations, more empathy, and maybe we'll get somewhere. Better. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk. This has been great. Thanks. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. Our new episodes come out on Fridays, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts so you can stay up to date. If you have any feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at Jessie Opie, J-E-S-S-I-E-O-P-I-E, or you can email me at J-O-P-O-I-E-N at Madison.com. For more IdeaFest content, you can check out our live from the Cap Times IdeaFest podcast. And if you haven't checked out our other podcasts like The Madsplainers and The Corner Table, you should definitely do that too. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.